But let's begin with a joke, because this is a joke, it's a joke at my own expense. I used to, when I was teaching there, well, I guess in my third year of teaching, a student came up to the last day of class and said, you know, I've been wanting to touch your hair also. <laughs> Can I touch your hair? And I said, okay, and I, I leaned my head over and she touched it and she said, ooh, it's like dog hair. <laughs> Can you believe that? So, so there, that's what you get for being young and curly. <laughs> so I survived that insult. Well, I don't know, attendance, you know, who knows? But what's odd is, and then I will get to work, um, there are students in the, in, this, in the school who attend classes that they don't have to attend. So you have an addition of students who don't want to be in the class. You have a number of students floating around who are ordering courses, but they actually want to take courses. Right? Um, I remember my old teacher, McKeon, who, who I've been ripping off for all this stuff. Um, he had a lecture and discussion class, and the discussion class closed with 20 students, so there's always 20 students in it. But the lectures had about 120. People just came to those lectures, and they kept coming year after year. They wanted to hear the lectures. So there is a norm on certain campuses, anyway, of students wanting to do more than what's required. Um, and that's, sometimes students don't even know that's possible, or that that's such an attitude towards learning is possible for them, because they never see it. Um, but it is possible. And, it ought to be encouraged, right? The, the reason why this class only has, has 25 and then they close it is not because of demand, because we could have filled it with more students, but because the room only accommodates 25. That's literally the reason why they close classes on the, on the size of the room. So if you're given a small room, you have a small class size, even though there might be a tremendous demand for the class, and they won't sign anybody in. They won't change the room, of course, that would be asking too much. So anyway, anyway, um, let me. Go. I've been trying to get this in order, and I'm sure I don't have it in order, but let me try it anyway. Um, I, I, it's, been, it's been occurring to me that a lot of what's presented to students in school uh, is presented as if it were self-evidently the case, um, and therefore can't be questioned. For example, if a teacher says to you, gender is socially constructed, this is the kind of thing that you might hear in a class these days. It's not presented to you as certain philosophers argue that, and that there are other possibilities of thinking. Not only are there other possibilities of thinking about that issue, but that when I say something is socially constructed, I'm employing a philosophical method by which everything is made by knowers, as we saw last time, that was a possible method of that kind. But there are other possible methods, too, that are not given to you, along with the thing that's actually just simply taught as if it were the truth. So a lot of, a lot of philosophical positions, and dramatically radical philosophical positions, such as gender is socially constructed, for a lot of philosophers that would be just wrong, just no, um, or reality is socially constructed. We were just teaching about doing a philosophy in a previous class in which she says that's not it. Um, you can't find more intelligibility in things than exists in things, right? You're, what, what, your knowledge is limited by the nature of the thing you're trying to know. Um, so a lot of radical philosophical positions, are, by radical I just mean um, really basic fundamental philosophical positions are passed off as if there was no other way of thinking because the, the, trans, the, the thing is the philosophical position is made transparent, so you don't see it as a philosophical position. So one of the things I always try to do is uh, elaborate on, when I'm teaching one method as I am in this class, 
is to elaborate on the other possibilities of thinking, and it, and it becomes very radical in terms of that every term that we use can be passed through different philosophical systems and will mean a different thing. Um, so, for example, when, when this question is asked, I guess I'll begin here. All right, what is art? Which is the kind of question that you get asked, or I suppose art students and design students discuss all the time, and you often hear it uh, asked. Uh, the focus immediately goes to this term, right? And they'll start talking about whatever they think art is. But the focus ought to go to these terms, because the first question that has to be asked is, what is a what and what is an is? Because those are actually more fundamental than what art is. Art is, after all, a what. So if you don't know what a what is, and if you don't, you can't say what art is, and if you don't know what is means, then you have a problem. And there are different alternative ways of thinking of these things. And we saw it just from the way we've been doing it. Um, we had the epoch up here, and the question was, what is x? in relation to X, the ground of its being, right? And you automatically see from that formulation that there are two X's, right? There's X with a small X and X with a large X. So any term you put in there, there are going to be two kinds of watts. There's going to be the watt that is the watt that appears, um, and the watt that is the watt that is the ground of the being of that appearance. All right, so if I say, what is art, I'm going to be asking, what is the relation of any given work of art to the thing that is the ground of the existence of art? But then there'll be two arts, art with a capital A, art with a small a. Uh, if we have, what is the, if we have causes, right? Uh, what is the cause of X? You're also going to have two Y's. You're going to have X and its causes, right? And those causes are not the same thing as x. So you're going to have two things there, too. You'd only have one here. To whom is x? Because x is a single term here. It doesn't involve a second term in its definition. Right? Now, along with these, by the way, as we saw last time, there go two kinds of is's. There's the is that's temporary and the is that's eternal or permanent. The is that's temporary and the is that's eternal. But here you only have one kind of is, because the, the, the historical changing is, right? So what's are very important to determine before you determine what a what is, right? And the fact that there are different kinds of is's and different kinds of times, is time and eternity or permanent and variable, um, is significant in the discussion of any term. Um, and that would go for us, too, because we have here, of course, we have what is x. I don't want to write it all <laughs> such that. It is itself and not not x. There's only one kind of x there, too, right? There's only one kind of is. Um, so if I say art imitates nature, right? I'm now using, in a sense, three terms that, that are subject to the same kind of variability. And that's what I want to discuss in this uh, in this class. Is that idea? Uh, that are the imitation of nature. You'll notice that in these two philosophies, these two orientations, uh, the real is different from what appears. If you just take the idea of uh, the epoch, for example, you see a Renaissance painting, but 
the thing, and that, that is there. It appears to you, right? But the Renaissance doesn't appear to you. The Renaissance is, a, is not that kind of thing. You can't find it anywhere. You can't go point it out. Um, and yet it is, the, it is by participation in that non-appearing entity that that thing has its existence, that that appearance has its existence. Did I get that straight? All right. Um, if you take, if you're a certain kind of Christian, you have lots of appearances around you, but the thing that is actually accounting and upholding the existence of everything you see is God, who doesn't appear. Right. So we have we have an appearance that is less real or has a dependent reality on an unseen reality. Right. That is not doesn't appear. The same is true here. Right. The table appears, but the atoms that account for the table don't appear. And yet the atoms are realer than the thing, than the, than the table, than the apparent table. So the appearance appears to you, but the reality is inapparent in such philosophies. Right? And you can, and in fact, you never see the cause. You know, let's take an example from politics, uh, from recent politics. Two planes fly into the World Trade Center. That appears. Why did it happen? That doesn't appear. And yet the first question you want to know is why did it happen? Because the causes are more important than the effects. If you know the causes, you, you know both the causes and their effects. Um, but here, here, appearances are real. Because what's real is whatever is real to you. Right? What appears to you is the only reality that you're going to be able to know. Um, we'll come to this in a, in a minute. So one way to, so you see that the root, so to speak, of the fact that there are two kinds of is, two kinds of what's, is in the fact that there's a reality distinct from appearance, and the root of there only being uh, one kind of what and one kind of is, is because reality is equated with appearance. And that makes sense, right? I'm trying to make clear to you that there are other ways of thinking about these things. Um, so the question of the imitation of nature, I just want to talk about nature, right? Imitation. We, we, we do every term in this way, but we don't want to get into it. There'll have to be two natures here, and two sets of causes, or two, na two sets of natures there. One kind of nature here, right? Uh, and that, that's exactly what happens. Um, you have, in these sort of philosophies, natural things that appear, right? And then you have the thing by which they're, the thing by, by virtue of participation in which they have their actual existence, you have their nature with a capital R, with a capital N, I mean. Um, so you have a lot of people around here, but somewhere there is the ideal person who never appears, of which all of you are just more or less imperfect imitations. Right. There is a tree, the ideal tree. It's not, in a, it's not in existence in appearance. You can't take it to you. It's not in the botanical gardens. But it's the thing by which all trees participate, uh, the thing in which all trees participate by virtue of which they are trees. But they're not the ideal tree. Everything that appears is less perfect than the ideal tree. Every appearance is less perfect than its ideal. Some of you have read Plato or recognized this is a platonic idea. Um, it doesn't have to be platonic. So what does art imitate? Bad art imitates things that appear. 
Real art imitates ideal nature. Art is the imitation of ideal nature. That's what it should be. The job of the artist, in fact, is very similar in these philosophies to the job of the philosopher. It's to get you out of appearances into ideals. A good example of this would be the icon painter. Right? The icon painter is there not to present you with a pretty picture, but to elevate your mind to the contemplation of God, who doesn't appear. Right? So you have, the, you have a paradox for the painter who has to make a visual representation of something intrinsically invisible. Otherwise, he's a bad painter. Right? Or low painter, I guess they would say. The real painter is trying to lift you to the ideal. Um, so what is art? It's the imitation of ideals. Uh, what is the cause of X? We've been looking at art, at art as the effect of causes. But we could remain within the same philosophical tradition and think of art as a cause of effects. This is what most of you spontaneously think of when you think of art. How does it make you feel? Right? You go to the movies and you get excited if it's an exciting movie. You go to the theater and you get emotional. You cry, you get moved. You get moved, right? The work has an effect on you. Um, and most of us spontaneously think of the work as a cause of effects and judge it in those terms. Um, what effects does art want? What is art? Art is the imitation of natural causes. Right? Causes of what? Causes of pleasure. You know, art doesn't imitate natural causes of pain or it's not supposed to anyway, it may, it may, it may be doing that now. Um, the, the effect you want is always pleasure. And whatever causes pleasure in reality, art takes as, as its imitation. But here's the catch. There are, there are two sources of pleasure. There are the permanent sources of pleasure, and then there are the local and temporary conventions that are pleasurable. Uh, Sugar tastes sweet to everybody, right? But you can learn to like the taste of bitter things. But the natural taste is for sweetness, right? The acquired taste is the secondary kind of pleasure. It's acquired by circumstances that could be different. Um, so you have permanent causes. Right? which inhere in the nature of human beings. And then you have, we can call variable causes, which inhere in the second nature of human beings. In other words, the customs that they pick up and become part of them. And what the artist has to do is manage the mix of permanent causes and, and, and variable causes to produce the maximum pleasure. Now, if you say, well, if I go to a, a movie that makes me cry, how am I having pleasure? It's a long story. <laughs> but uh, if it was, in these philosophies, if it was actually pain, you wouldn't go to it. You'd go away from it. And one way you can tell that something is pleasurable is that people go towards it. And one way that you know it's painful is that people go away from it. No one goes to the dentist to have pleasure. You have to be forced to go to the dentist. It really is a matter of force. You mean, your parents force you when you're a kid, right? And then when you grow up, your conscience forces you. Ah, your internalized parents 
<laughs> and the threat of other things. Right, threat of losing your teeth and so forth, which is a very unreal threat to young people, which is why they don't go to the dentist when they're young. Woe to them. <laughs> I, a former student of mine has been going around asking elderly people what, what mistake they had made so he can avoid it. And they all said, I didn't go to the dentist. <laughs> so I passed that on to you. Um, good graduation advice. So if nature is a cause of effects, art imitates nature's causing of effects. Nature causes lots of effects, causes painful effects as well as pleasurable ones. The artist selects from the effects that nature causes for the pleasurable ones and then organizes the artwork to give a maximum pleasure. Um, here it's interesting. To whom is XX sounds like it's personal, right? Personally subjective. But if you just scale up from the person, right, because the person is just uh, local and temporary, you get the conventions of the society. So to whom is XX becomes to which society at what time is XX, right? So it's still relative to a time and a place. Instead of being relative to a person, it's relative to a whole society. Um, in these philosophies, nature is itself a convention. It takes a little bit of thinking to think about that. Every society has its own idea of what's natural, right? Um, and therefore, what is natural is conventional. In this philosophy, what is natural is simply the local conventions. Um, what does art imitate? The conventions of other artists, right? It imitates whatever is considered the natural form of art for that society. So art is the imitation of conventions. Which conventions? The successful conventions. You don't imitate failed artists, you imitate successful artists. So art becomes the, the imitation of successful artists. Why? Because they copy the conventions which the society takes for nature. And that for the people who are in that society are pleased by it. So that's three different kinds of nature and three different kinds of art that come out of it if art is taken to be the imitation of nature. It doesn't have to be taken to be the imitation of nature. I'm just using the term to show the variability of the positions and to make a very important point about this idea. But as my old teacher will tell you throughout the history of, of ideas, art has been thought of as imitation. But then there are times when art is thought of primarily as imagination, and then there are times when art is primarily thought of as expression. Uh, the expression period of our own time ended, apparently, about <laughs> the time I, I adopted it. Um, but there are other ways of thinking of it, right? We could say art is the expression of the individual, or we could go through the same machine. Art is, strikes the imagination of the viewer, or we can go through the same machine. But imitation is the one I'm, I'm looking at because I want nature in there. Um, so what's the case here, right? Well, what is nature in philosophy like the one we're dealing with? Remember that we're considering artworks as self-intelligible wholes. What's nature to look at in terms of self-intelligible wholes, right? Well, the answer is nature is the creator of forms, right? 
trees, rocks, people, cats, animals, clouds, all of those are forms. Nature creates forms. What does art do? It imitates nature in that it too creates forms. That's the crucial thing. It doesn't imitate the appearance of nature. That's what people usually think of when they think that art imitates nature. It imitates the creative fecundity of nature and its, and its, its tendency to produce whole forms. Right? Um, it's true that nature doesn't always produce whole forms and neither does art, but when nature is normative, it produces whole forms. People produce people. Right. Um, those people are people. What's a form, you might ask? Well, it's a, it's a complicated idea, and it has many different ways of looking at it, but one aspect of form is always wholeness. All right, a form that's incomplete is not a form. Uh, another aspect of it, I guess, is perfection. <laughs> not just wholeness, but harmony of, of parts, and all the parts go together and, and observe a common termination that is their form. Um, the human body is a perfect example of a form. All of it, it forms a whole of parts, all of which are mutually subordinated to each other and mutually interact with each other. It's, it's, it's more of a whole than you think because I'm standing, right? It doesn't look like much of an accomplishment. Well, think about how complicated it is. I'm not standing because my skeleton is made of steel, right? And a dog doesn't stand up because it's a table. If you hit me on the head and I lose consciousness, I fall down immediately, I don't stay standing. What's keeping me up? There's not an invisible line in the top of my head to the ceiling that's holding me up, like one of those skeletons at Halloween, right? What's holding me up? Could you take toothpicks and rubber bands and make something that could stand up? That'd be a good foundation assignment. <laughs> it is. Did you do it? No, no, glue doesn't count. The glue is a structural principle. I don't have any glue here. I just have muscles and ligaments holding me up. Well, by some impossibly complex organization of tensions and, and pullings on things, I'm standing. That's how determinate the form that nature produces is. Every part is mutually adapted and subordinated to each other in such a way as to make a perfect whole. That's what art imitates, right? The perfection, the perfected holes of nature. Uh, and that's, that's the key to this. That's why when we look at these works of art that we're looking at, we're trying to see how every part goes with every part to make up the thing that it is. What's another way of thinking of form? The very thing that makes that thing that thing, right? Um, the thing that makes it that thing and not any other thing, right? Um, and the artist is the person who generates those forms. Not the way nature does, because nature generates it without, without uh, well, if we go into Gilsano, it doesn't, doesn't generate it freely. If a man and a woman couple, and there is, insemination occurs, I'll make it sound as exciting as possible, um, that, what's it called? Is it a zygote, the first cell? The zygote? That zygote doesn't have any choice. It must become a person. Right? But the artist operates with freedom because he's not determined by natural forms. He's only determined by the principles and 
of the work that is coming into being, whatever that, those principles are. So although the generation is like nature in one sense and it eventuates in a perfect form, it's unlike it in another sense in that the artist is free. All right, I don't want to go into why the artist is free, but he's free to make any form he wants. Um, that's a really good feature of this room, by the way. I didn't see her come in, did you? <laughs> you got a real problem, right? You got to go to that seat. Um, so that's what it is. When I, when I was a, uh, started here, the, the fine arts teachers were all, um, they were all, uh, I put this nastily, I guess. There was a certain kind of t-shirt that downtown artists used to wear, and it was a dark blue, and they all wore it. And they wore plumber's pants, and they were all sort of rough existential Jackson Pollock imitations. <laughs> um, it was very funny, actually. Um, and they used to say, art doesn't imitate nature. One of the damn things is enough. But they thought that he meant by imitation, photographic reproduction of what it looked like, right? And people still think that, right? Um, and we see there's plenty of you know, representational painting that justifies their thinking that if art doesn't imitate the appearance of nature, it's no good. Uh, but that's, that was never the idea uh, of what the artist did, even in Aristotle, who says art is an imitation of nature. The art of the, of the tragedian, the, the writer of tragedies, is to make a whole plot, a whole, in which the characters are wholes, not just a collection of characteristics. The art of the actor, to extend it, is to find the unity of the character that he's portraying, and to find that unity in how it interacts with the other unity of the other characters. Wherever you look at art, you find somebody trying for a unity, trying to make a whole thing that's perfect. Um, one of the reasons why an actor is a bad actor is because he can't find the unity in the part. What he does is make up a simplification of the character rather than the complexity of the character. When I, when I, last time I was in the theater, I saw Merchant of Venice, in which the guy who played Shylock decided that Shylock was angry. Okay, but that's all he was, was angry, right? There was, no, there was nothing else but anger in his portrayal. When you see a, a, a guy play a villain, he's not finding unity in the character. The unity is given to him by the type. But to create a character is like creating a person. Creating a work of art is like creating a person. It's a lot more than simply borrowing types. The other thing to say about this is that um, nature, in a sense, copies itself so that people reproduce people who reproduce people. But in the arts, the form has to be generated originally. Right? That's what I mean when you say that art doesn't tolerate cliches. It has to be new. Art comes up with new forms that nature never dreamt of. Not that they look different in a painting necessarily, but the unity of them is its own unity and not dependent on some form outside of itself. And you can easily make the distinction between art that imitates itself and art in its original forms. Um, roughly speaking, the distinction between talent, which imitates artists, and genius, which originates the form. Uh, and that's the big distinction. How many artists are there like that? Not many. But then no one said there were a lot of artists in this, but there's an easy way to do it. But that's the principle we're working on, and to the extent that the forms are so unique that apprehending them becomes a lot harder than it looks, right? Yeats is a good example, and I hadn't thought of this, because his principle, whatever is unifying those poems is not something that is easy to put your finger on, 
right? It's not a story, it doesn't come to a simple end, it's not a little anecdote followed by the moral drawn. It's something else, and apprehending its unity is the real challenge, but that's the very, that is the exact challenge that a work of art does actually face you with, is to apprehend a unity that is unique to itself, and you just have to find it. Uh, your job is to find that unity. Um, and whether you find it or not in any given instance is immaterial, you've got to keep looking for it. We haven't gotten to the heart of any of these age problems, I can tell you, but that's okay because they might be more complex than, than we can apprehend. I'm willing to accept that. So anyway, that's how that goes. Um, next week I will talk about the implications of all these different philosophies for beauty. And we'll talk a little about the philosophy of beauty uh, and see what comes out of it. Okay? Any, any comments or questions about any of that? question with design, you know, since there are a lot of designers in here, designers don't typically originate the form. You know, a, a jacket is a jacket, right? And it has to have a certain kind of function that, that is not free to, to depart from. Um, but design imitates nature, and Aristotle would say, but design imitates nature in a different way. It imitates the function of nature. So that what this jacket is actually imitating is skin. It's better than skin because I'm, I'm just, I'm already it, got skin. I've already got skin, but it protects. It warms me. There we go. It doesn't really, but uh, yeah, <laughs> a coat is better than the skin in weather like this because it keeps you warm. Shoes are better than your feet because you can walk over all sorts of surfaces with them. A hammer is better than your fist because you really can't do that or press a nail in, you know, not easy to do. And a pliers is better than your fingers because there's a limit to the test. So what we say with design imitates and improves on nature, right, and for the convenience of people. But whether it originates forms in this sense is a tricky question. When design begins to originate forms, we begin to see that design becomes more like what we expect of art. And I don't know whether that happens very often. Certain chairs are approaching the quality of sculpture. Approaching. <laughs> Maybe it gets there. But in the, in the theory of design in this terms would, would look at Aristotle's idea that it, it partly imitates, partly improves on nature. All right, so much for that then. And I'd like to say at this point, My weekend has just begun. I'm done. Up to you now. What should we do?